Carlos later nervously checked his watch. The men should be there by now. It might be Miami, but this was still business. Suddenly, it was time. Carlos's business partner, George Young, beat him to the door, opening it gingerly. Three Colombian heavies greeted them, pushing shopping carts. For a second, the more easygoing George nearly laughed at the bizarre scene. Gun-toting mobsters pushing metal shopping carts through the apartment building. But the looks on their faces stopped him. This wasn't a joking matter. Hiding their anxiety, George and Carlos hurried to help unload the heavy shopping bags. And then, the Colombians left as quickly as they'd arrived, their carts clattering out in front of them. Carlos didn't want to rip open a shopping bag. Instead, he found several kilo-sized packets of cocaine wrapped in duct tape. Payday looked a little different these days. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our third episode in a four-part series about powerful cocaine traffickers George Young and Carlos Leder Rivas. Last week, we followed the men's escapades as they lifted their smuggling business off the ground in the mid-1970s. One thing was certain, the guys had guts. This week, we'll watch their business reach new heights as part of the infamous Medellin cartel and see how, despite their rapid success, their ambitions might not be so compatible after all. In the spring of 1977, 34-year-old George Young and 27-year-old Carlos Lader were about to strike it rich. The reckless, overconfident Carlos had nearly bungled their first big cocaine trafficking deal, but George saved the day. He'd picked up the 50-kilo shipment in Miami and unloaded the whole lot in Los Angeles for $2.35 million, which would be worth more than $10 million today. After a relieved Carlos made his way to meet George in Boston, he passed the good news and the cash along to the Colombian mobsters. And overnight, George and Carlos became the most sought-after cocaine traffickers between Colombia and the U.S. Suddenly, everyone in Medellin wanted to make a deal. Carlos's longtime belief that the U.S. could break open the cocaine market finally got through when the Colombians realized they'd been making chump change next to what George and Carlos could charge in the States. Never mind that Barry Kane, the pilot George and Carlos had hired, wasn't yet finished outfitting his plane. The Colombians were ready to go. Instead of waiting, 
the suppliers in Medellin jumped in to offer the duo other ways to get their product to Miami. Once they got it there, Carlos and George made quick work to ship it across the country. George's guy in LA, Richard Barile, was their prized distributor. For their trouble, George and Carlos would each make five to $10,000 for every kilo they moved. If they moved 50 kilos a week, as George had the first time, that could be $500,000 a piece. If they could move more, like 100 a week, they'd each be making up to a million dollars every seven days. Today, that'd be worth anywhere from two to $4.3 million. George and Carlos knew they'd hit the big time. Before, their spoils afforded them a taste of the good life. But now, they'd be able to afford anything they wanted, no strings attached. Naturally, they weren't going to let that opportunity slip away. By May 1977, George had traded Massachusetts for Miami, where Carlos had found an apartment overlooking the bay. The duo, and Carlos's new wife of course, would all live together while they got things moving. George was going to be traveling a lot anyway, so he figured he didn't really need his own place. Within a few weeks, Carlos got the call from the Colombian suppliers that the first delivery would be arriving the next day. Just like that, the pipeline was open. They'd keep shipping kilos in on commercial flights and boats every few days after that. So when an unmarked van drove into their building's parking garage the next day, Carlos and George were ready. Three Colombians got out, removing two shopping carts full of grocery bags. George and Carlos opened the bags to find 25 packaged kilos of pure cocaine. Each of these kilos had been labeled with a name or a letter to indicate its owner. Some were middlemen, while others were the suppliers themselves. What George and Carlos didn't realize was that despite the wide range of names and letters, many of the kilos were owned by the same people. People like Pablo Escobar and Humberto Hoyos. Pablo was becoming an unstoppable force in Colombia, and Humberto was a close associate of his based in New York. With the industry's rapid growth, these powerful men knew better than to advertise to all the middlemen that they owned the majority of the cocaine stock. Keeping a low profile meant they'd be less likely to be targeted by rivals or get ratted out to the DEA. Much like George, they weren't so concerned with glory when they could have money. George and Carlos knew that much. Bringing that money in was their first and foremost job. Their process needed to be airtight enough that they could do this several times a week to show their suppliers they were reliable. Moving quickly, both out of nerves and in case someone saw the Colombians leaving with their carts, the two men wrapped each kilo in several more layers of thick paper. They then packed the 25 kilos into four hard case suitcases, fitting six or seven kilos into each bag. Just as they finished, an old girlfriend of George's who'd previously transported drugs for him arrived. She was dressed sharply as a businesswoman, and George quickly changed into a similarly nondescript outfit while Carlos called a cab. George and his friend lugged the two suitcases downstairs and made it to the airport in time for the 11 p.m. flight to Los Angeles. As the plane took off, George grinned, his adrenaline pumping, 
He couldn't relax yet. For all he knew, federal agents could be waiting for them in LA. But at least the first part of the plan had gone smoothly. This just might work. Six hours later, George's LA distributor, Richard Barile, picked him up while his lady friend caught the next flight back to Miami. For the next few days, George hung out at Richard's penthouse in Redondo Beach while Richard sold the 25 kilos of cocaine to his contacts. Just three days later, George packed $1,175,000 in cash into a camera case and boarded a red-eye back to Miami. Knowing how much money was in the overhead bin, George couldn't sleep. The mere possibility of a mishap made him deeply anxious. This, combined with the thrill of drug smuggling, made for an odd cocktail of adrenaline. When he got back to the apartment in Miami, George and Carlos finally let themselves celebrate. They'd done it. This was it. They were practically printing money, doing what they dreamed of back at Danbury. And there was nowhere to go but up. So when another delivery arrived from the Colombian heavies the next day, George and Carlos rolled up their sleeves and did it all over again. Before long, the two had their system down pat. For the next few months, George was flying back and forth across the country every couple days, taking suitcases of cocaine out to LA and returning to Miami with millions of dollars. To the airlines, George seemed like another commuting businessman, though he often used a fake ID just to be safe. While he was gone, Carlos was separating out each of their cuts, then handing the rest of the cash over to his Colombian contacts. It didn't take long before they were each taking home several million dollars a month. But the job of cocaine smuggling magnate didn't stop there. George was doing the heavy lifting of selling, so Carlos wanted to pull his weight too and prove he was better than his past mistakes. So he set out to expand their business by networking with every well-connected Colombian mobster in Miami. Carlos and his wife quickly became regulars on the city's vibrant Colombian party scene. But they weren't just there to have fun. Carlos knew the city's nightlife was a sure place to develop business relationships. In fact, Carlos had very little interest in the lifestyle that cocaine fueled. He rarely touched drugs or alcohol preferring to keep his mind sharp for deal-making. But that didn't mean he was above encouraging his potential clients to get a bit high. That made it easier for him to get the best deal. George, alas, wasn't so noble. He started snorting cocaine regularly. It made him feel confident, of course, and he was always up for a good time. Yet that wasn't what made him start. Flying constantly back and forth across the US was exhausting and the jet lag wiped him out. George soon discovered what nightclub goers already knew, that a bit of cocaine helped him stay awake. And besides that, when George was waiting for Richard to sell the cocaine in LA, he didn't have much else to do but get high and hire sex workers. He figured he deserved to enjoy himself. Even when he was with Carlos in Miami, George would place work on the back burner and party hard. Carlos was frustrated by this, and he especially didn't like the risk of his business partner doing something foolish. But George wouldn't hear of it. He thought Carlos was too controlling. Not to mention, Carlos himself didn't always exercise the best judgment either. 
The seeds of discord had been sown. Sure, business was going well, booming even, but the little cracks in their partnership were starting to show, and it wouldn't take long for those cracks to widen. Coming up, we'll find out how George got careless and how Carlos began to put his own interests ahead of their business. Now back to the story. By the summer of 1977, 34-year-old George Young and 27-year-old Carlos Leda were millionaires. In a matter of months, they trafficked hundreds of kilos of cocaine from Colombia to consumers in Los Angeles. Still, the millions of dollars Carlos and George pocketed accounted for just a fraction of what they'd make for their suppliers. And this was before their own smuggling operation was even up and running. By July, Carlos had drummed up so much business that they had more cocaine than George could carry on commercial flights. So the next option was to start chartering private jets between Miami and LA. After all, they had the money. George took to his new role, delighting in dressing the part of an oil magnate or European royal to deflect suspicion as he flew 50 kilos of cocaine out and came back with more than $2 million. The rapid escalation was dizzying. At the beginning of the year, George and Carlos hadn't even been sure they'd be able to get potential Colombian suppliers to take them seriously. And now, they were two of the most in-demand men in the Americas, making more money in a week than they'd ever seen before. Whenever George wasn't in the air, he found himself treated like a celebrity, hounded by people who praised him and then tried to mooch off him. As much as he'd always wanted money and approval, he was surprised to feel overwhelmed. The piles of cash were growing so high that George didn't know what to do with all of it. He started to feel fake and meaningless, just like most of his new relationships. He grew more paranoid. The cash made him feel vulnerable, convinced either law enforcement or rivals were tailing him. To cope, he developed elaborate routes for getting to and from the airports, just to be safe. The only time George actually felt in control was when he was doing cocaine. Before long, he was doing four or five grams a day. For context, anything more than a gram is considered potentially lethal. Carlos noticed the steep uptick in George's use. His partner's addiction had quickly become more than annoying it was now a problem. Carlos also didn't like that George had this whole other life in LA that he knew nothing about. He and George were still supposed to be in this together, like brothers. Their distributor Richard was now a huge part of their business, and Carlos knew next to nothing about him. Soon, Carlos started badgering George to introduce him to Richard. And while he understood Carlos's argument, George made excuses. He knew how easy it could be for Carlos and Richard to cut him out of the equation once they knew each other. George, essentially, was just a glorified courier. But when his anxiety lessened, George reminded himself that he had no reason not to trust these two. He'd been selling to Richard since his marijuana days. He and Carlos were sworn brothers. Maybe all the cocaine and exhaustion really were just making him paranoid. 
In late July 1977, George flew out to L.A. with a delivery. There, he learned that one of Richard's dealers was throwing a party that weekend. There'd be a star-studded guest list. What better way to introduce Carlos to the California side of their business? So he bit back his worries, called Carlos, and invited him to fly out. As George and Richard drove to pick up Carlos at the airport, George wondered again if he'd made the right choice. Now he worried that Carlos might go off the rails and do something crazy, or be too weird for the laid-back Californians. As charming as he could be, Carlos's intense attitude and overly formal mannerisms sometimes put Americans off. When Carlos got off the plane, he was clearly out of his comfort zone. Usually, he was in control, manipulating situations to his advantage. Suddenly, everyone else knew each other, and he was the odd man out. After some awkward small talk, the trio finally arrived at the party. Richard, sensing the tension, offered Carlos some cocaine, hoping to loosen things up. George started to say that Carlos didn't do cocaine when, much to his surprise, Carlos accepted. There was that wildcard side George had feared coming out. The cocaine only made Carlos more anxious and uncomfortable. He found himself overwhelmed by all these glamorous Hollywood types. They just made him feel more out of place. As glad as he was that he'd gotten to meet Richard, he wished he was back in Miami where he knew how the social hierarchy worked. The next day, Carlos booked a flight home, leaving George to handle the Californians and distributors. Carlos was relieved to touch down in Florida and dive back into the side of the operation he knew. Carlos's next project was trying to find their business somewhere in the Caribbean to use as a stopover once their pilot Barry was ready to get started. The idea was that they'd be able to shift gears quickly as soon as Barry was ready. Neither Carlos nor George wanted to be as involved in the handling of the cocaine as they currently were. It was a level of risk the so-called bosses shouldn't have to carry. Thus far, their organization was still a junior partner to the men in Colombia, where Pablo Escobar and his associates had built an effective supply operation. George and Carlos's goal was for their own smuggling and distribution business to be on equal footing with the Colombians, effectively making them senior executives in what would eventually become known as the Medellin Cartel. In Carlos's mind, the best way to move themselves up the food chain was to establish a base of their own, much like Pablo Escobar had in Colombia. Privately, Carlos also saw this as his chance to realize his own political dreams. Things had moved faster than he'd anticipated, and he now had the kind of money that could buy him an island, if not yet an entire country. Maybe he couldn't take over Belize or stage a revolution in Colombia yet, but their smuggling stopover could be his own private domain. The Bahamian Islands were the ideal distance between Colombia and the US. And since their pilot Barry already had relationships with banking figureheads in the Bahamas, that seemed like the perfect place to start. That summer of 1977, Carlos began to make trips down from Miami, scoping out the islands and chatting up wealthy locals to gauge which was the best spot. On one of his trips, 
Carlos happened upon Cistern Key, a private island owned by a larger-than-life American named Robert Vesco. An infamous financial fugitive, the middle-aged Robert Vesco had been living in the Caribbean and Central America since the early 1970s. He'd fled the U.S. to escape an investigation by the SEC for stealing over $224 million from investors. After that, he'd prevented his own extradition from the Bahamas and Costa Rica by buying off various elected officials. The two men hit it off right away. Robert was immediately interested in Carlos's business plans and, to Carlos's surprise, told the younger man that he wanted to invest in his cocaine operation. He was even willing to introduce Carlos to the president of the Bahamas. Carlos was thrilled. Not only did Robert approve of his operation, but he was a man who'd managed to steal hundreds of millions of dollars and get away with it. The U.S. government knew where Robert was, but they couldn't do anything about it. Carlos had found his new hero. So he settled in, ready to learn from a seasoned pro. On Robert's suggestion, Carlos looked into an idyllic nearby island called Norman Key. It had a long history as a smuggling outpost and was rumored to have been used by such renowned pirates as Blackbeard and Henry Morgan. By the late 70s, Norman Key had amassed a never-open small hotel, an airstrip, and a marina, and it was just 210 miles from Florida. There were a few neighbors, but not many. Carlos saw it and knew he'd found the perfect Bahamian base for their cocaine smuggling business. Always an expert at telling people what they wanted to hear, he made the corporate owners believe that he was looking to develop a resort. He talked about expanding everything from the airstrip to the hotel, even turning the marina into a proper harbor. The owners were excited by the opportunity. Within days, Carlos had made the purchase, and his new friend Robert helped him get to work on developing the property. Though things were just getting started, Carlos's mind raced with the possibilities. Once Norman's key was ready to go, they could ship up to a thousand kilos of cocaine through there per trip. They'd corner the entire cocaine market in the United States and with Robert's help, the U.S. government wouldn't be able to touch them. But Carlos's aspirations didn't end there. With that kind of money and power, he'd finally be able to emulate his idols, Adolf Hitler and Che Guevara. Norman's key would be his own little empire, and he would use it as a launching point for a revolution in Colombia. He'd finally be able to become the visionary political leader he'd always dreamed of being. While Carlos had always fostered these dreams, he'd never know when or if he'd be able to bring them to life. It was Robert who encouraged him that now was the time. As much as Carlos saw Robert as a mentor, Robert in turn considered Carlos his protege, who he'd groom into an even more successful international outlaw. But first, Carlos had to get George on board. Carlos knew that his political master plan might be a hard sell for his partner, but at least he could get him to sign off on Norman's key. Once George understood step one, it'd only be a matter of time before he came around to everything else. Carlos was sure of it. Coming up, 
we'll see how George and Carlos butted heads over the direction of their business. Now back to the story. Late in the summer of 1977, 34-year-old George Young and 27-year-old Carlos Leda were taking their cocaine trafficking business to the next level, nearly autonomous transportation. George had been bringing in millions of dollars a week with his trips between Miami and LA, but now their pilot, Barry, was finally about ready to start flying in cocaine all the way from Colombia. Carlos had just bought most of Norman's Key, an island in the Bahamas, to use as their headquarters and his own private empire. There was just one hitch. He hadn't actually gotten George's blessing in advance. For most of the summer, George had been too busy traveling and too high on cocaine to pay attention to what Carlos was doing. He trusted that Carlos was working on his side of the business, just as George was working on his. But by August, George managed to sneak some much-needed time off. He wanted to take his tens of millions of dollars in cash up to Massachusetts, where a friend had bought a house for him to store it in. He wanted to deliver some of the cocaine to his distributors up there, too. A thank-you gesture, since they'd been the first ones to sell it for him. On one of his trips up to the Northeast, he stopped off in New York to see Umberto Hoyos, one of the Colombian bigwigs they often worked with, and one of Pablo Escobar's partners. George and Umberto had always gotten along well, and, though George didn't realize it, much of the cocaine that he and Carlos moved was Umberto's. While in New York, George met Umberto's wife's sister, 24-year-old Mirta. The two fell in love almost immediately. Though Mirta had been born in Cuba, she and her sister had been raised in Chicago, and their stepfather had been part of the Italian-American mafia. When Mirta's sister married into the Colombian mobster world, their parents had been thrilled. But Mirta herself would get involved with the smuggler too. Well, that was just fate. For George, while the rush of falling in love was exciting, it also meant he was distracted at precisely the wrong moment. He'd always been driven by his whims, prone to thrill-seeking, but he'd never let romantic relationships hinder his business interests. But after several months of grueling, non-stop travel and too much cocaine, it was nice to just relax and have fun with Mirta. It was easier, too, now that Carlos wasn't in Miami as much anymore. He'd been telling George about this plan he had for a Caribbean island, but George thought it was just his usual spitballing. The two hadn't had time to have a proper conversation about it. When George did get around to thinking about it, he decided that buying an island in the Caribbean felt massively unnecessary. But then again, George didn't have any intention of being in this industry for the long haul. If the last few months had taught him anything, it was that the cocaine world was a bit too intense for him. If he and Carlos just did this for another year or so, he'd be able to cash out and buy a nice house on the Mediterranean coast. When the two business partners finally sat down to talk brass tacks and Carlos's plan for Norman's Key, George was shocked to discover how far Carlos had already gone. He hadn't realized Carlos had already bought the island, much less started work on it. This wasn't what they'd planned. 
As George pointed out, basing all their operations on one island wasn't a good idea. For one thing, there were limitless possibilities for where that cocaine could land. They shouldn't limit themselves to just flying through the Bahamas and into Florida. For another thing, it put them at risk to be so predictable. It wouldn't be hard for law enforcement to figure out their routes as soon as they realized that everything was going through Norman's Key. What George didn't say was that running the same routes all the time was boring, with none of the think-on-your-feet excitement that he preferred. Carlos wasn't giving up that easily. He countered. He didn't care if law enforcement tailed them. Money could buy them power and freedom. His new friend Robert Vesco had promised to introduce them to the famously corrupt president of the Bahamas, whom they could easily buy off. Then they'd be safe to run their business, and there'd be nothing the US government or anyone else could do about it. In fact, Carlos wanted everyone to know where he was and what he was doing. He wanted to be famous and respected, to have people think of him like Adolf Hitler and Che Guevara. Once he had that renown, he'd turn his sights to taking over Colombia. George was exasperated. This level of showmanship wasn't what he'd signed up for. In the back of his mind, he'd hoped he'd have all the money he needed to cash out before Carlos even got his Norman's Key operation up and running. George had good reason to believe this. They'd just heard from Barry that he'd finally finished retrofitting his plane. If he could transport hundreds of kilos into the U.S. at a time, George would be able to cash out pretty soon. So Carlos and George agreed to disagree for the time being and focused on Barry. His first flight was relatively simple. Carlos and George would arrange the transport for some Colombian suppliers, but wouldn't handle the U.S. distribution. Instead, they'd get paid when they handed off the cocaine to the supplier's guys in the U.S. This did, however, mean that they'd have to exchange the cocaine and money simultaneously in person. Normally, George and Carlos would avoid this, as would most drug traffickers. The chance that someone would get trigger-happy and decide to keep both cash and product for themselves was generally considered too high. But the payout was going to be a good one. A million dollars each for George and Carlos and three million for Barry. Today, that would be worth more than four million for the partners and nearly 13 million for the pilot. Plus, the first shipment would signal that they were entirely independent of the Colombians. In no time at all, they could expand their transport operation to more clients. A couple weeks later, Barry flew from North Carolina to the Bahamas to Colombia and back again. He preferred landing in North Carolina as opposed to Florida, where law enforcement was more likely to be watching for smuggling. Then he drove down to Florida with the 250 kilos of cocaine. The cocaine was divided in half, and each set of 125 kilos was put in the back of a rental car. Barry parked the cars outside his condo building in Fort Lauderdale. The next day, the Colombian heavies arrived at a specific time, and Barry gave them the keys to one of the cars. The day after that, the Colombians came back with two suitcases full of $1.25 million each. In the hot, humid condo, 
George and Barry counted the cash out twice to make sure it was all there. Carlos watched the Colombians for any sign that they might try to go for their guns. When it was clear that all the money was there, Barry gingerly took out the keys to the second car and handed them over to the Colombians. The Colombians backed out the door, equally concerned about being double-crossed. When they watched the cars drive away, George, Carlos, and Barry breathed a sigh of relief. And then the adrenaline rush kicked in. They just made $2.5 million. And they were going to do it again the very next week. Fresh off that high, George and Carlos tried to put their differences behind them. They were a good team, just like brothers. Carlos begged George to come down to Norman's Key and check it out. Once George saw the island, Carlos was sure he'd see the vision for it. Making money together was their specialty, and the operation at Norman's Key would allow them to scale that up in unbelievable ways. Finally, George agreed. Having not spent much time in the Caribbean, George understood the appeal when he got there. The scenery was stunning, with clear blue waters and soft, sandy beaches. This was the kind of place he could easily retire to once he'd cashed in his chips. Carlos showed all the land he'd bought, hoping George would get it. He was also excited for George to finally meet Robert Vesco. Once they were all together, he'd see how willing the old ringer was to share his expertise and invest in their business. After all, Robert was one of the most successful financial criminals Carlos had ever met. But George was immediately put off by Robert. Instead of seeing possibility, he saw a lifelong con man with an inflated ego. He could see how captivated by Robert his friend was. It made George queasy to think that, in this case, it was Carlos who was being played for financial gain. George also suspected that Robert was fueling Carlos's grand political ambitions and extremist tendencies. As they toured the island, Carlos pointed out where the handful of remaining neighbors lived but reassured George that he'd make them leave, or get rid of them if he had to. The comment was shocking. George had never heard Carlos threaten anyone outright like that. They were smugglers, not thugs or murderers. George was sure this was Robert's influence and didn't like the direction this could push their business. Carlos sensed something was wrong. George wasn't showing any excitement. If anything, he was reticent rather than his relaxed, outgoing self. And he didn't seem like he warmed to Robert at all. By the time George headed back home from the Bahamas the next day, both he and Carlos were starting to feel that something had shifted. This should have cemented their partnership, but instead, it seemed to have driven an island-sized wedge between them. George wondered if they ought to talk again once they had both cooled down. But back in the Bahamas, Carlos had already made up his mind. If George wasn't on board with his vision, then there simply wasn't room for George in his empire. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out if Carlos could go through with betraying his longtime business partner 
or if George would ultimately get the last laugh. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>